There's certain verses uh, throughout these three chapters that are just key verses, I think, in our Christian life, and key verses that have been controversial and understanding what it means for your brother to stumble and cause him to stumble and um, things of that nature. So uh, I'm excited to preach this. We're going to be in just half of the uh, chapter 9, so I'm going to read chapter 9, verses 1 to 18, and we're going to spend our time uh, in that chunk, if you will. We'll hit the second part of it next week. Uh, which is, again, just an awesome, um, awesome text. So chapter 9, I'm reading out of the ESV. We've got ESV Bibles in the back. Uh, There's nothing super magical about ESV, uh, but it's uh, readable and literal. Um, It's kind of in between the NIV and the NASB, if you're familiar with those translations, so that's why we like it. Uh, Chapter 9 says this, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who served as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not, not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is God's word. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. It is the primary thing you've given us by your Spirit to change us from the inside out. So I ask you, move me out of the way, the Holy Spirit, you will speak the words that need to be spoken today. You'll challenge each and every one of us to take a look at our own lives, our own rights, of what we're holding on to tightly, Father. I pray that you will help us to see your mission as beautiful, the privilege of serving with you as a joy and the denial of our rights as a privilege. It is the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, let's just uh, really quickly push pause button and remind ourselves that this letter is written to a church that's probably about five to six years old, and it is a church that is very divided. Uh, It's a church that is young. It is a church that's vibrant. It's a church that's growing. It's a church that's spirit-filled, and it's a church with all of its members going in a thousand different directions on their own little missions, uh, and really they are hurting each other. They are each driven by uh, their own probably personal preferences and their own personal missions, and they're trying to spiritualize their particular perspectives so as to assert their greatness over one another, and ultimately they're destroying the gospel community that God planted and that he is trying to build. And so Paul's intent in writing this entire letter is not just to scold them and to to tell them to stop acting in bad ways and start behaving in good ones. His intent in writing, and really our intent in preaching 
Corinthians at all, this gift that was given to the church. I mean, this is probably one of the most messed up, if not the messed up church in the Bible. It's been given to us so that we can learn from it, and honestly, so that individually, we can each repent of our own agendas as part of the church and get on mission with Jesus. The worst thing you can have as a church is basically 400 people deciding what their mission is and all moving off in a different direction and growing. That's even worse. Not unified because eventually you turn on one another and hurt each other. So Paul is trying to bring unity. And so part of the problem or part of the reason why they're going off in different directions, that the Corinthians have kind of gone wild, so to speak, is because of the freedom in Christ that Paul preached. And he preached that or led with that oftentimes. If you read Galatians, you would see this because the Judaizers, those Jewish Christians, Jews who had become Christians were still holding on to the law and saying, well, hey, I love Jesus, but I also have to do these things. And so Paul had preached oftentimes very boldly, very strongly about freedom in Christ. And so in these chapters, really 8 through 10, Paul is addressing this idea of Christian liberty. What it means to be free. So let me just kind of set the stage and tell you what it means to be free in Christ. What that phrase means, because we use it, you may use it, and you may not know why you're using it, or what the snarf you mean by using it. So let me help you. Biblically, being free in Christ means this. That our acceptance before God is not based on our obedience to God's law. Okay? It means that our righteous standing, to be free in Christ, means that my righteousness before God, my rightness, my acceptance, my get to be in heaven with Jesus, my righteousness standing, or my righteous standing before God is based on Jesus' perfect obedience. Okay, so what's that mean? What's that do to be free in Christ? It means that anything and everything that I do to save myself will always and forever fall short of God's perfect standard. And therefore, I must put my faith in what Jesus did for me. And so, through faith, I'll speak about myself, but really anyone who's a Christian, this incorrigible, rebellious, unlovable child of wrath becomes adopted into the family of God. I become a son of the King And I receive a full inheritance. Not a partial, full inheritance. And so I live. I now live as one who is accepted. Not one who is working for acceptance. Not one who has ever fear of being kicked out of the family. I am one who is accepted, loved unconditionally, no matter what I do. Because of my faith in Christ. And so therefore, if I fail, if I screw up, if I do something bad, If I fall short, if I fail in my obedience, I boast in Jesus. It's not based on mine. And if I succeed, if I have a good day, if I feel like a good Christian, if I read my Bible and pray and help the old lady across the street, whatever your good idea is, I still boast in Jesus. Because I realize that that's him coming through me and I would not help the old lady and I would not pray and I would not want to read my Bible and I would not do any nice things. And so I look at Jesus and go, thank you for living through me. And so I'm freed, free in Christ, I'm freed from the fear of failure before a just judge. But I'm also freed to serve my father, not obey my boss, to serve my father with joy. That's freedom. Okay? A very freeing way to live. Now, that being said, knowing that's my foundation, so I don't have to get in a bunch of emails when I say, we are not free to do whatever we want. What I mean by that is the Apostle Peter, in his letter, warned us. He said this, Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So he qualifies our freedom a little bit. Says you are free. Free, free, free. But don't use it as a cover-up for sin, 
In other words, just because we are made righteous by Jesus and freed from the condemnation that sin brings doesn't mean that there aren't good things or good works to pursue and bad things or bad works to avoid. It simply means my motivation for pursuing or avoiding is totally different. But those things still exist. There's still evil I must fight to avoid. And if I fall into it, I boast in Jesus. And there are good works that I should pursue and stir others and encourage others to complete and to accomplish. But if I fall short, I boast in Jesus. If I succeed, I go, heck, Jesus is awesome coming through me. So our motivation is different. So in the Bible, the Bible gives us kind of three categories of of decision-making to help govern our Christian freedom. Okay, So the first thing that God gives us is He gives us very specific commands of things we're not to do. Okay, It's no guessing. There are certain things that God forbids. This would include lying, sexual morality, like we've talked about, defrauding our brothers, as you've seen in Corinthians. You say, don't do this. So they're very, do not murder, right? God said, don't do this. But I'm free in Christ. No, not free to do that. Okay? So there are certain things God gives us that we must not do. But the second thing to help this Christian freedom is God also commands things we must do. We must pursue. Like what? Well, I'm sure you can probably think of some. Loving your neighbors. Forgiving. Using our words to build up. Again, back to foundation. But what if I don't? Okay, boast in Jesus. But we still are pursuing these things in Christ, by the Spirit. So He does give us things we must do and things that we must not do. But then there's this third category where God remains silent. Where God gives us the freedom to make decisions and choices about our decisions. Things like food and drink and tattoos and entertainment and education and all these things that God doesn't say, well, do it this way or don't do this way. And this is the chapters that Paul is talking about, right? Food sacrifice to idols. He talked about that. He allows us the freedom to make these decisions. And the fact is that Not only will Christians hold very different views and opinions about such things. We disagree about certain things. We disagree, I bet, about what movies we should watch and not watch. Okay? We probably disagree about what foods we should eat and should not eat. We have disagreements and we have opinions, and that's okay. We must not fall into a place of judgment upon someone who disagrees with us. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, I'll read it to you, Romans 14, and you often hear me sometimes, we talk about tattoos and things like that, and people are like, well, we shouldn't do this, we should, whatever, and I say, you know what, that's a Romans 14 issue. Romans 14 issue? What are you talking about? Well, I'll read it to you, so now you can use it too. Romans 14. Now, I'll qualify this to say, not every issue is a Romans 14 issue. But, Paul writes this, as for, and it's similar to what we... Chris preached about last week. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's not a commentary on vegetarians. Okay? I'm just the mailman. I don't need emails. You hate vegetarians? I'd say that. It's in context of 1 Corinthians 8, right? Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. 
For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live or die, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Great passage. Fantastic. Especially when we start having cultural decisions to make, and we end up on different sides of those. And we're like, well, I can't believe you eat that, or watch that, or think that, or say that. Christians don't use that language. Says who? Right? Well, I've got my list of words. Who made that one up? Because I didn't find a list of words in the Bible. But I dare not say that there's not words that are offensive, that hurt. There are words that can be spoken that will not build up. But I don't have to use a single piece of profanity to break you down and make you feel like crap. I won't use any word on your list. Get it? It's a little more complicated than that. So, Paul is trying to deal with these issues that that God is kind of silent on and give us some level of kind of governing principles to, okay, when God doesn't say, when God doesn't come definitely down and forbidding or commanding something, what do we do? And so he's been giving these principles to guide our decision making. And we have all kinds of principles already, like my kids. The guiding principle for their lives right now are obey your parents. Right? So I may ask them something, well, God didn't say that, but I did. Right? I'm not telling you to go against Scripture, but your guiding principle for your life right now is in Scripture. It's called honor and obey your folks. Okay, so that's a guiding principle when God is silent on whether I should clean the toilet or not. Well, God has spoken. Listen to your dad. Okay? You can use that one too. Obeying the laws of the land, right? God's given us some guidance. And what happens when that law confronts God's law and and what He has said? He's given us some governing principles. Or taking care of your bodies, right? Should I eat at McDonald's every single day for the rest of my life? Well, physically that's been shown to do a little bit of damage. And considering your body is a temple of the Spirit, and God has given you something to steward? The answer is probably no. Should I ever eat McDonald's? That's a Romans 14 issue, right? See where we're going? God gives us some principles to to guide our decision making here. And so, in chapter 8, what Chris preached last week, what you have is a situation where we'll call them mature Christians. Um, Knowledge can puff up, but I don't necessarily think these mature Christians are just uber prideful necessarily, you can get there, but they're mature Christians and they've asked Paul how they should deal with these immature Christians who are viewing this this meat sacrifice to idols as a bad thing. Like they're freaking out, maybe they're like, you guys can't eat that, who knows what they're saying, but how do we deal with this? Because the mature in that situation know that nothing is wrong with eating the meat. It's like eating Easter eggs from the Easter Bunny. You can't eat that Easter egg. That's from a god of this culture called the Easter Bunny, and you cannot partake. Whatever. Cadbury eggs are good, okay? (laughs) I don't care what you say. And guess what? I know the Easter Bunny ain't real. Sorry. You know, right? It's weird. So the mature look at these, like, food sacrificed idols, and Paul agrees, says, I know there's one god. There's like, "This this is dumb. They're worshiping rocks and stuff, and they're like, it doesn't make, it doesn't poison the meat. The meat isn't like cursed. I'll eat this, and like suddenly something bad will happen. No, he's like, no, it's no big deal. We know there's nothing wrong with the meat, but he does warn them. He said, look, don't get prideful about it, as Chris talked about, because it could harm them if you do. It could harm them if you just eat whatever, like suck it up, dude, and start eating, right? He says, look, your decisions aren't made in a vacuum. You can't just have your little individual decision making and it doesn't impact anyone. You have to ask yourself, who is this going to impact? Who might be harmed by my freedom that I have the right to exercise? And so Paul says, look, you may be impacting your weaker brother. So one of the principles he says is, for the love of your brother. Now I don't believe that means you go into a restaurant and you never have a beer for fear of somebody seeing you there. 
Okay? Personally, I don't believe that. But it is to say, do we consider, when we make these decisions, who is around us, who is going to impact, and do we fault on love when we think or, or maybe suspect that it's going to harm, harm a weaker brother? Okay? The principle of love to guide our Christian freedom. So now he goes into another one. And the thing that Paul is trying to put forward is to say, look, your right to do something doesn't necessarily make it right all the time. And at times, denying your freedom is more helpful than exercising it. And those times, quite frankly, are hard to determine. Like, when is that? How do I know that? And it's the reason why, I should say, it's so hard to determine, that's what makes two extremes. The legalist and the guy that doesn't want any rules at all. Because those are easy. It's easy to make your list. Here are the things that Christians do and don't do ever. And then over here it's like, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Woo-hoo! Praise Jesus. Okay, Those are two easy places to live. The difficult place, or I would say the more important and courageous place to live, is when you are in the middle discerning in a situation. Because that requires you to do much more praying, much more studying, much more counsel, much more conversation with those who are around you. It's much more difficult and important. So we do have the freedom to exercise our rights, but Paul's going to say you also have the freedom not to. So Paul knows, he he begins to to use himself um, as an example a little bit. He knows that He, in this text, said this, he's free to eat what he wants. He knows that he is free to marry who he wants. All things, as he's already said, are lawful to me. But not all things are helpful. And just like these guys, he says, look, i got great knowledge just like you. He is not a weaker brother by any stretch. Paul is the mature Christian with a clear conscience. He knows right. He knows wrong. He knows truth. He knows falsehood. He says, look, I'm an apostle. He's not pulling rank, but he's going to use this to say, let me show you what I mean by denying my rights. He's like, look, I'm an apostle. There's only a few of those. He is one of the men called by Jesus in person. He met the resurrected Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus where we get our name of our church in Acts chapter 9. He met him face to face. He learned the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And then he was sent on mission to preach and to plant churches by the command of Jesus Christ. Now I can say that, right? You know, Jesus told me to do this, but it's not like Paul saying that. If anyone could have pride and knowledge and strong faith to guide him, it is Paul. And you begin to sense in this letter that there's some in Corinth starting to question his apostleship. And you see this in the second letter as well, like, yeah, you're not really an apostle. You're not, you know, nothing to be excited about. And he tells Corinth, like, I don't really care what those guys say. If anyone knows that I'm an apostle, you, do, you guys do. How do you know that? I planted your church. Because of my work... Your faith was birth. I came preaching. You believe. We gathered as a church. In some ways, obviously indebted to Christ who saves and gives new life. They are indebted to Him for their existence. And so as such, Paul is going to say, and this is really comfortable for a pastor who gets paid to say, Paul says, because of that, because of the work I did amongst you, he has God-ordained rights for material support. Because when he starts arguing in these passages right here, where he says stuff like, I'm free to eat, I'm free to drink, I'm free to marry, and what he means is, I'm free to bring my bride along with me on my missionary journeys, and I'm free to do all of that at the expense of the church. 
It's not just about food sacrifice to idols. He's saying, look, I actually have the right for you guys to support me financially. He goes on to say, I have the right to refrain from working a secular job. He actually asks it rhetorically to only Barnabas and I. Not have to quit our, quote, regular jobs. He's a tent maker by profession. All the other apostles have, including Peter, Those guys quit their secular jobs and they do the work of the ministry and they're supported by the work of the ministry. He says, I have the right to be paid, as do all the other ministers, by the churches that he has ministered to and Corinth would be one. And Paul argues, he says, look, this is is like common law. This is like, everyone knows this. It's natural. It is also Jewish law. And he gives some interesting examples. He's like, you know, when soldiers, he's, he's making his case that he has this right. Like soldiers don't support themselves during the war. It's like they go out in the front lines and go, hey, I'm going to go work at the general store all week and then I'm going to go fight on the weekends. Okay? When we're at war, the soldiers are supported by those he is defending. Farmers and shepherds, they partake of the fruit of their labor. It's natural. This isn't written down. It's like, duh. But then Jewish law also allowed the hard-working oxen in the field. So they'd go through the fields and they would uh, uncouple their coverings on their mouths so they could actually, as they're threshing and going through the wheat, they could actually partake of some of the wheat that they were threshing. And he compares that to uh, himself. And to strengthen his case, he goes, look, preachers in the New Testament are just like the Old Testament priests. And what did the Old Testament priests do? They basically did not get their own land. They were dispersed among the tribes, and they were supported by the people around. They took their uh, livelihood, if you will, from the offerings at the temple, and their food from the temple. So in other words, and he says it very plainly, that the Lord commands that the preachers of the gospel get their living from the gospel. And I would say... By living, <clears throat> let me qualify that. If you ever see me driving a Porsche, you should be concerned. Okay, Not if it's an old piece of junk Porsche, but you know what I mean, right? The living is, is their basic sustenance. It's not luxury. And I know this has been abused in the church, and there's a lot more I could say about it. But what he's talking about is like, not some lifestyle, but a living. So Corinth should support Paul, and churches should pay their pastors. But Paul is not scolding them for lack of support. That's not the point of his text, or the point of his letter. He's reminding them of his example. We read in Acts 18, what we see is Paul came to the church, preached, and he worked as a tent maker the entire time he was there. In other words, he did not take a penny and has not taken a penny from them. So he is practicing, if you will, what he preaches. He is denying rights that he has made a case for. I have a right in natural law and common law and in Jewish law. I have a right to partake. But he has chosen not to make use of those rights. And the truth is, there's a real freedom in not being paid by the church. And I wish today I was not paid by the church. When we first planned the church, I worked as a high school teacher, and it was awesome. By awesome, I mean uh, it was hard work. <clears throat> but for two and a half years or whatever, I could care less about giving. I never, never thought entered my mind. I knew that I could pay the rent for what we were doing with my own tithes. So I was like, hey, we'll be fine. Who cares? And I knew what would happen, and you've seen this probably happen in pastors, when you suddenly go to a place of being paid, things change. The pastor starts thinking about things differently and maybe withholding, who I know this is going to tick off that big giver, so maybe I won't say that. By God's grace, I've never got to that place. But the reality is, the elders had to force me to quit about two and a half years in as I was going for my contract, and I was like, no, I'm going to go back, and the elders said, I don't know if you're going to do that. And the reality was, I was going to be a bad dad or a bad husband or a bad 
preacher or a bad teacher. And the only thing that could really go in that, according to God's calling at that point, was teaching. But it was not my ideal. If I could go back teaching again and kind of like not get paid, I would love it. But there's a reality of, you know, you break a person because it's just too spread too thin. But there's a freedom in that. And Paul, I understand what Paul is saying here. He has denied himself his rights, and there's certain reasons for that. We ask ourselves, like, well, why? Why would someone like Paul, or why would I, why would you make yourself more uncomfortable than you have to be? That's what he's talking about here. Because you go, well, I'm not an apostle. All right, let's just talk about you choosing to make yourself more uncomfortable than you have to be. Paul is motivated by something greater than his comfort. Most of us are driven by our comfort. Did you know that? When you get married, that goes a little bit less. When you have kids, a little bit less. But for the most part, I think we're driven by our comfort. From prison, here's what Paul wrote. One of my favorite verses, Philippians 3.8. From prison, mind you, in there for preaching Jesus, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Okay. Well, what could that be? All things. Paul had a fantastic job prior to becoming a Christian. He had a really big paycheck prior to becoming a Christian. He had respect from many prior to becoming a Christian. He probably had a fantastic home. Maybe he even was married, possibly, prior to becoming a Christian. He says, I count all things as loss. I count them as rubbish, garbage, or worse, in order that I may gain Christ. That's Paul's perspective. He considered the loss of his comfort and his job and his friends and his reputation and his health and his power and his reputation as incomparable to having gained Christ. And having experienced the joy, this is the key, having experienced the joy of being a son of the king, a joy of being loved regardless of the fact that he killed Christians. The joy of being freely forgiven, of being freely empowered and freely given a a new purpose in life, he wants others to experience that joy. And so he says he would deny himself every right if it meant the gospel would go forth. And so his need or his demand for personal rights, things that he has a legal and and natural right to, right? A right to life and liberty and the pursuit of... He has these rights. He says, I will deny all those because it's overpowered by a greater gospel desire. He says in the, in the text four things that drive him. The demand for rights, the first thing is overpowered by the desire to see the gospel preached. Paul has endured a loss of everything. And what he says is that he will endure the loss of whatever might hinder the communication of the gospel in word or in lifestyle. Have you ever asked yourself, What in your life may actually be hindering the communication of the gospel? Paul didn't just simply tolerate what happened. It wasn't like all these bad things just happened to him. And so, um, well, I'm enduring. I'm just, you know, doing my best. No, on the contrary. Paul chose to go with less. And sometimes Paul chose to go without completely. And sometimes Paul chose to go with worse. And he did this for the mission of the Lord. More than he valued having an awesome spouse, which he could have. More than building a family. More than building a career. More than having a full belly or an awesome reputation or a great job or an awesome vacation on Cyprus. He valued more than his comfort the gospel going forth. 
that drove him. And I tell you, Christian, that's not just the heart of the apostle. That's supposed to be the heart of Christians. I'll deny myself so that the gospel can go forth. So I can see others experience this joy. The second thing he says is that the demand for his rights is overpowered by the desire to be above reproach. By above reproach, it means to have his motivations for preaching questioned. And like I said, when, we, when I was first teaching and just preaching, um, it was much easier for me to call men and women to go be Christ-like at their jobs because I went to another job. And it changed a little bit when suddenly I'm in the world and I engage with people, but it's different when you're going and sitting with 150 kids and a bunch of staff members and you're basically making certain sacrifices so that you can see the gospel go forth. And I can say, look, go be Jesus at your job. Well, yeah, well, you're around Christians all the time. Easy. I wasn't then. It was different. Paul comes into this context and he's sensitive to losing... um, Grounds for boasting that they'll have, well, you must have ulterior motive, Paul. And they think that because the sophists of the time, they go through, and those are the guys who are like the wise philosophers who debated publicly. We've talked about that in Corinth, like with wisdom and knowledge, all this stuff is from these guys who would go, and they were, sometimes they'd be hired to be tutors, but what they would do typically is create little gatherings of disciples. And those disciples would pay them so that they could teach them to argue like them and win arguments because that was the thing that was respectable. So Paul walks in and all these guys are preaching basically, arguing. And Paul's like, I don't want any of that. Because the guys who are doing that are not concerned with making disciples who honor God. They're making disciples who win arguments and that means they get more money because they get greater reputations. So Paul basically denies his right. He goes and he's like, I'm going to build tents in this place. I'm not going to partake of any of my financial um, support from the church so that my motives aren't confused and you think I'm out this or into this for myself. He's different. That's probably why they're questioning his apostleship because he refuses to take money. And he says, I'm not like them. I don't want to be like them. I'd rather die than be like them, he says. It's interesting how hard pastors are trying these days to be like a lot of people out there that might be the wise philosophers or the talking heads of our day. He was so concerned, Paul was, with them trusting his message and heart behind the message that he didn't just wait to go, oh, go, I don't want to take money because I don't want to be like that. He actually looked at it and said, okay. As I go into this place, as I enter this family, as I enter this job, as I enter this community, what could I or should I go without so that the gospel go forth? It wasn't, oh, I'm sorry that offended you. It was like, what could I go without? What What can I choose to go without that would proclaim the gospel? And he, in this particular context, said, all right, I'm going to go without money. Because they're paying for the wrong reasons, these other guys. And I don't want to be confused with that. Third thing. The demand for his rights was overpowered by a desire to see the gospel preached, by a desire to make sure his message was above accusation, but also he denied a demand for his rights because he honestly just had a desire to obey Jesus' call. See, Paul understands... I think like a lot of us forget that this is not all there is. You have been given a certain number of breaths to be on this planet. A planet that was created, a story that was written for God. That you are a part of. The story isn't about you, it's about Him. And so in that time, you have a mission when Jesus saves you is where it starts to honor Him with whatever time you have left, whatever stuff you have, whatever energy you're given. And so Paul says, woe to me, curse be me. Man, I am in big trouble if I don't preach the gospel. Because he recognized that he has been entrusted with something to steward. 
something to manage. He has been appointed to a task. And a steward is something is more than someone just holds on to it. Okay, I have this message. I'm just going to make sure it never gets changed and gets protected and it's pure and all these things. A good manager, a good steward, not only keeps something untarnished, he must do whatever he can with what he has to make it more. And so a denial of his rights for the sake of the gospel is an act of obedience for him. Because he knows he's going to have to give an account to somebody. If you claim to be a Christian, if you believe with your heart that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins on the cross, that He rose from the dead to give you new life, you also have to believe you've been given a mission. The question is, what are you doing with it? 2 Corinthians 5 says, we've been given a message of reconciliation as ambassadors. Did you know you're an ambassador? An ambassador sucks who stays in the embassy all day. It's not his job. Maybe you're too busy holding on to your right to comfort or your security or whatever it is to actually obey Jesus. Last thing Paul says is the demand for his rights overpowered by Paul's desire for internal rewards and not external ones. See, even though Paul is commissioned as a messenger of Jesus, um, preaching is more than a duty. Like, he could easily say, well, I'm a preacher, i got to do it, it's obedience. I'm just going to open my mouth because I don't want God to be mad with me. His greatest hope to go without things materially is that others will benefit spiritually. His, one of his most primary motivations, honestly, is a love for people. It's a love for people. The Corinthians only do their duty if it results in personal gain. And there's a lot of Christians that only do their duty if it ends up in the personal gain. Like making sure there's flowers there on Mother's Day so the wife doesn't get bugged at you or mom doesn't get disappointed with you. I'm not questioning motivations. I'm asking you to question them. A love for people. A genuine love for people. In a marriage, if your wife were to ask you, like, why do you love me? Well, it's my duty. It's my job. I married you. I'm your husband now, so kind of goes with the territory. Oh, yeah, let's see how far that goes, right? Go and throw that one down. Let me just remind you that when evangelism, when proclaiming the gospel, when telling others about Jesus, when taking risks and denying yourself rights for the gospel, so the gospel will go forth, when that becomes duty, you've lost. You've lost. Paul wants them to do as he does. He says it in, I believe, second, it might be 1 Corinthians 11, 1, so we'll get to it. But he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, the greatest reason for us, for you, Christian, to deny your rights is that you might point others to the one who truly denied every right. That's why. You don't have to say anything at all at times. Because you are living a sermon, if you will, about Jesus. See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered into our human brokenness. What does that mean? It means the King, the Eternal Son, the Infinite, relinquished His right and came off the throne. What does He say in 2 Corinthians 8-9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich... Yet for our sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What did Jesus do? Jesus relinquished power. Jesus abandoned his freedom. Jesus took on weakness. Choosing to. Jesus chose poverty. Jesus denied his right. The supreme creator of all things. The eternal son of God. He didn't force his way. He could have came down and said, let me tell you my rights are. I'm the king. Worship me down. That's not what he did. He denied his rights, and then look how he denied his rights. He didn't force and try to say, well, by the way, you owe me these rights. 
He didn't complain. He didn't sit in resentment. Yeah, I'll deny my rights, but it's going to suck. He didn't sit in resentment. No. He didn't fight. He didn't run away. He relinquished all his rights and did so with joy. The one who deserved our love, the one who deserved our adoration, the one who deserved our worship, the one who deserved our allegiance, the one who we killed, denied himself every right he was due to secure my salvation. Your salvation. So the question for us all is, will you deny your right for blank? Fill it in. Will you deny the right you have to blank for Jesus? Not so He'll love you. Not so He'll accept you. Not so He'll call you more righteous. You can't be any more righteous in Christ. But at a response of the fact that He denied everything, every right He had for you. In some ways, it's easier to, den- it's like easier to understand for us to deny our rights for our brother like, well, I understand, like, that's more loving for this weaker brother who's struggling. But what about a love for the gospel? What about love for Jesus? What about love to see other people redeemed? Other people experience the freedom and the joy of forgiveness. Other people to experience the hope that there is hope beyond this world. The love for that. I mean, has, your, has our mission become little more than the comfort of just ritual religion? Does the gospel still fill you with awe? Does it still give you energy? Does it still fill you with hope? Do you still see it as a source of power? Do you still rest in it as a place of joy? Because if the gospel captivates us, we will be a people who will go with less for Christ. I'm not telling you what your less is, but there is a less. Sometimes there's a worse and sometimes there's nothing. Not as a natural consequence of being a Christian, but as a choice. So I ask you, church, because we're at an interesting crossroads for our church, and I don't know exactly how it's all going to lay out. But what I do know is that we're going to have to each individually give up some things. Because the question is, are you willing to give up your rights so the gospel can go forth? That might mean for you giving up your comfort. That might be giving up your security. That might mean giving up whatever dream you had. That might mean giving up your time. It might mean giving up that job if God's called you to go somewhere. That might mean giving up your money. It might mean giving up your vacation plans, or it might be giving up your lifestyle that you feel like you have a right to have. Someday, it may mean giving up your life. Though I know many of you go, nah, I don't think so. And all of that so that the gospel can go forth. We must be a people who are so captivated with the grace of Jesus, so convinced of its power to save, so convicted to reach the world that self-denial becomes our desire. It becomes the thing that motivates us. And Christ becomes the person that empowers us and the model that we follow. The deeper the gospel goes into our hearts, I believe the more the heart of Christ becomes our heart And our calling as individuals and as a church has got to get beyond a mission of personal preferences. If your mission is simply one of personal preferences, whether it be worship styles or ministries outside the church or whatever, if that's the size of it, that's not Christ's mission. Christ is way bigger. And those who claim Christ, those who have identified with Him through baptism, those who participate every Sunday in communion are commanded and empowered to find joy in denying 
every earthly and material and temporary benefit for it to bring eternal benefit to others. You're empowered to do that. That is our desire in Christ. And so, for you, as couples, as individuals, as families, please hear the Spirit now and ask, let Him ask you, what is or what will Jesus ask you to deny your right to so the Gospel might go forth? I will not be the one to tell you what that is, but I guarantee you, you put an ear to the Spirit, He will tell you. I'll close with a verse out of Mark chapter 8 where Jesus gives us some hard words. But they're beautiful words. Reminding us and centering us on what is most important in this life. Mark 8.34 says this, Calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone, if anyone will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? My question for you and for me and for the elders is what will we give up to save the souls of others? I pray as a church that that will be our drive. It will never become a church that's just so excited about getting together and that's where it stops. We have a mission to complete. And it's a joy-filled mission and I don't know how much time we have, but I want to be able to sit before Jesus and say, we went all in. We went all in. We did all we could with what we had, with the time it was there, and then sit back and laugh with all my Damascus Road friends about the crazy things that Jesus did. I don't know what he's going to ask you to deny. I ask myself and have the Spirit ask me the same questions because I have my own comforts I try to hold on to. So I pray together we'll get uncomfortable for Jesus.